Welcome to the Loma Linda University Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you will be blessed by the message. What does it mean to be a Christian today? Have you ever wondered that? Especially, especially in light of our rapidly changing world. What does that look like? It seems like sometimes that our society is shifting so quickly that we don't have time to get used to one shift before two more pop up. I mean, just think about how much has changed in the last 10 years. In 2013, Zoom was what we did with our cameras if we wanted to take a picture of something far away. Masking is what we did with tape when we wanted to paint our walls but not our floors. Social distancing was what the popular kids did to nerds like me in high school. (laughs) They distanced themselves. Some of you get my pain. In 2013, junior high students still used their pencils more than they used their Chromebooks. High school students still submitted all of their homework on paper, and college students had never even heard of ChatGPT. In 2013, nobody had heard of phrases like, Black Lives Matter, Make America Great, or Fake News, or Me Too. In 2013, Donald Trump was still a reality TV star. Marjorie Taylor Greene was still a CrossFit instructor. And Caitlyn Jenner was still Bruce Jenner. So much has changed in the past 10 years. And according, according, if, according to an article in Forbes magazine, the rate of change is only getting faster. He writes, a defining feature of the COVID-19 pandemic has been the accelerating impact it has had on many of the trends that were already evident at the start of this year. Taken collectively, this has also been the case with the speed of change itself. We were already in the midst of the fourth industrial revolution, which was promising change of an unprecedented scale and delivered at breakneck speed. The pandemic has exacerbated that shift in a variety of ways. In other words, the world was already changing quickly, and the pandemic only made it change faster. Now, I know that in this room, there's a variety of different feelings about how our world has changed. There are some in this room who find all these changes disorienting, while others may believe that these changes were long overdue. Both sentiments are present in this room, maybe even present within us. There are some changes that we're more comfortable with than others. But what I'm discovering in my conversations with many of you is that regardless of what we believe about these changes, encountering them, has made many of us wonder how, as Christians, we are to relate to them. What does it mean to be a Christian in this ever-changing world? How do we relate to a society whose foundations seem to be moving? How do we navigate this shifting societal map? And here's the temptation. It's the same temptation that Christians have faced throughout history whenever they encounter change. And it's this, to abandon or to assimilate. To abandon. To abandon the world 
and, and retreat to the safety of our Christian enclaves or to assimilate, to become so much like the world that we are indistinguishable from it, to abandon or to assimilate. And Jesus, Jesus urges us towards a third option. See, in his final, final recorded prayer before he was crucified, Jesus outlined the ways that he envisioned his people relating to their changing world. He knew that his crucifixion, his death on the cross, would be extremely disorienting for his followers. He knew that it would cause them to question all that they believed and that they lived for. He knew that they would be tempted to abandon or to assimilate. And so he spends some of the final hours before he faces the biggest challenges of his life. He spends some of those hours praying for his followers. That they can be in the world, but not become of the world. That they, they would neither abandon the world or assimilate into it. That they would remain connected to the world, but not be corrupted by the world. And despite all that has changed in our world, that is God's prayer for us as well. So how do we do that? How do we remain in the world, but not become of the world? Well, that's what we're going to study over the next three weeks. Throughout this, this series, we will study Jesus' prayer to discover what it means to be a Christian in an ever-changing world. And today we're going to start by looking at what makes us different. What is the distinctive mark of a follower of Christ? And how do we maintain that despite our changing world? And that's found in John chapter 17. So if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open them up or turn them on or flip them over to John chapter 17. We're going to start in verse 14. Because you may find that what Jesus says is our distinguishing mark is different than what you expect. Verse 14. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. We're going to come back to this word that God has given us later on. But for now, it's important to note what that word does. That word makes us different. It makes us different. See, this is the situation that we live in. We live in a world whose values and worldviews often run contrary to the core of Christianity. We live in a world where being pure is often seen as being prudish. We live in a world where being noble is often seen as being naive. We live in a world where naturalism reigns and there is no room for the supernatural. We live in a world whose values and worldviews often run contrary to our own. But that's nothing new. Because Christianity was always meant to be an outsider's religion. And I know that's difficult for some of us to accept, especially those of us who have grown up in the United States. Because Christianity has been the dominant religion in the United States since its beginning. Like some of us remember... Some of us remember a time when they used to print whole transcripts of sermons in the L.A. Times. Do you, do you remember that? Do any of you remember that? Or, or we remember a time when the post office in Loma Linda didn't deliver mail on Saturdays 
because it was the Sabbath. Anybody here remember that? Yeah. And although those things have now changed, we still think of America as a Christian nation. After all, the president is a Christian. He, he was inaugurated with his hand on a Bible, and he still quotes it in some of his speeches. So it's difficult to accept that Christianity was an outsider's religion, but that's exactly what it was in its beginning. In the Roman Empire, if people knew about Christianity at all, most of them, most of them thought of it as a peculiar, peculiar mutation of Judaism, at best, or, or a dangerous cult, at worst. I mean, there was a lot of confusion about what Christians believed because they talked about drinking the blood and eating the flesh of Jesus. Some people thought they were cannibals. So they faced constant suspicion and even persecution. It was an outsider's religion. And that makes sense because Jesus himself was an outsider. Of course, there were times when he was popular with the crowds. But the establishment, those in power, they saw him as a dangerous, destabilizing force. That's why they crucified him. So they were so afraid that Jesus and his, his messages would disrupt their comfortable lives, that they were willing to kill him in order to stop him. Jesus understood what it meant to not be of this world. That's why he says in verse 14, for they are not of the world any more than I, than I am of the world. See, Christianity is countercultural because Jesus is countercultural. Jesus runs counter to every culture, every generation, every political agenda. Jesus is no more American than he is Mexican or Pakistani. Jesus, Jesus is no more a boomer than he is Gen X or millennial or Gen Y, Gen Z. Jesus is neither Republican nor Democrat. He's neither MAGA or Black Lives Matter. Jesus is none of these things, and he is all of these things. Because Jesus runs counter to every culture and every group. And don't tell Randy I said this, but Jesus is not even a Cowboys fan. He's not. I know that's disappointing for some of you to hear, but he's not. Although, although Jesus does have a heart for losers, so... I should know because I'm a Commanders fan. But Jesus is neither because Jesus runs counter to every culture and every group. Of course, there's elements of every culture and every group that Jesus affirms. But there's also elements of every culture and every group that Jesus challenges because Jesus is not of this world. And as followers of Jesus, neither are we. Again, verse 14 I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. The values, the worldviews, the truths that as Christians our lives are founded upon run contrary to every culture, every group. So then how are we to relate to this world that is different from us, that, are, that is different from Jesus? This is what Jesus prays in verse 15. My prayer 
is not that you take them out of the world. Did you catch that? Jesus knows that we are different from the world, but he doesn't want God to take us out of the world. He does not want God to separate us from those we disagree with. He doesn't want God for us to remove ourselves from those that live differently, think differently, believe differently than we do. He says, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them, you protect them from the evil one. See, he's addressing, he's addressing humanity's instinct to abandon. See, what has happened over the past decade is that people have started to call out, to call out those they disagree with on social media. And we've always called out people we've disagreed with. But what has changed is in the last 10 years, we've started to have an unprecedented reach. Regular people like you, can, you and me can reach thousands, maybe even millions of people. A 17-year-old can tweet something and possibly millions of people can read it. And that democratization of communication can be good because it can give the disenfranchised a voice. It can, it can hold those with power accountable. It can be good. But alongside that good has grown an intolerance for those we disagree with. And at our worst, we become like an online virtual mob scouring the internet, looking for the next person to condemn. And a mob has no nuance. It has, no it has no grace. So we all become judged by our latest and our greatest mistakes. I know people who have cut off longtime friends just because they disagreed with them on a certain issue like COVID-19. And I get it. Those interactions... They're uncomfortable. We may even be afraid that being in dialogue with people that we disagree with may give them an undue influence over us and over those we love. So I get it. And yet Jesus is very clear that he does not want God to take his followers out of a world that they disagree with. He does not want God to separate us from a world that thinks differently than we do. Instead, he says, my prayer is that you take them out of the, not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. So he doesn't want us to be taken out of the world, but he does want God to protect us from the evil one. Notice there's a distinction between the two. The world is not the evil one, and the evil one is not the world. So God wants us to be connected to the world, but be uncorrupted by the evil one. And that's why he says in verse 16, they are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Because this is the other response. One response is to abandon the world. The other response is to assimilate into it to become so much like the world that we're indistinguishable from it. So then how do we keep ourselves 
from assimilating into the world. This is what Jesus prays, verse 17. Sanctify them by the truth. Sanctify is a key word here because it literally means to set apart. So this is how Jesus pictures his followers being a set apart, being not of the world. He says, sanctify them, verse 17, by the truth. Your word, there's that word again, your word is truth. See, what keeps us distinctive, what keeps us set apart is God's word. See, we do not remain set apart. We don't remain different. We don't remain uncorrupted by retreating from the world, but by remaining in the word. God's word has to become our compass, our rule, our guide for life. So what is God's word? I'm going to get a bit technical here for a moment, so bear with me. In its broadest sense, God's word encompasses all of God's messages to us. It comes through scripture, through his messengers, through nature, all of it. All of it is God's word. But there are indications, Jesus gives us indications in his prayer that he has a particular subset of God's word in mind when he says your word. And that is the message that comes specifically through the person and the words of Jesus. That's why he says in verse 6, I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. I have revealed you. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. So the words that his disciples accepted were the words that came through Jesus to them. So when Jesus says your word, he likely has in mind the, the message that comes through the person and the words of Jesus. Jesus is the word of God. And that makes sense because throughout the book of John, that phrase, the word, is a metaphor for Jesus. I mean, the book begins, John 1, 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Who is John talking about here? Jesus, right? Jesus is the word. See, for John, Jesus is the ultimate revelation of who God is because Jesus is God. So all of God's other words, all of Scripture itself, they are all pointing to Jesus. And that's why when, when one of the religious, some of the religious leaders came up to Jesus and challenged his authority, Jesus said to them in John chapter 5, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify of me. They point to me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. So what makes us different? What makes us set apart what makes us uncorrupted by this world is Jesus. And as long as we fix our eyes on Jesus, as long as our identity is grounded in Jesus, as long as the way we walk and the way we talk and the way we interact with the world is growing every day to be more like Jesus, then we are not becoming of the world. 
because we are in the word. See, it is our connection to Jesus that keeps us from being corrupted by the evil one. So what does it mean? What does it look like to be connected to Jesus? How do we know that we are connected to him? What is the distinguishing mark of a follower of Christ? Well, Jesus is very clear about this. That same night, earlier that same night, the night before he was crucified, Jesus gathered all of his disciples together and he shared one final important message with them. And it's found in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. He says to them, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, by this one thing, by this defining characteristic, by this, everyone will know you are my, what? Disciples, if you love one another. See, the distinguishing mark of a Christian, how we know that we are not of this world, that we are not being corrupted by the evil one, is that we are growing to love like Jesus. That's the defining mark. That's why author Frederica Matthews Green writes, the main evidence that we are growing in Christ is not exhilarating prayer experiences, but steadily increasing humble love for people. Wow. See, this doesn't mean, this doesn't mean that prayer isn't important. Prayer is absolutely crucial to following Jesus. I can't imagine a follower of Jesus not praying. But if the way we pray isn't helping us to become more like Jesus, isn't growing a love for others, then we're doing it wrong. And this doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that, that the other teachings and doctrines of Scripture aren't important. They are absolutely important because they all point us to a God of love. Sometimes when I share this message, people think that I'm saying the other doctrines and teachings are not important. They absolutely are because they teach us how to love like God and about our God of love. But if the doctrines and teachings we are holding on to are keeping us from loving the way Jesus loves us, then we don't understand them correctly. Because all of Scripture testifies of who? Of Jesus. And Jesus' defining characteristic is love. And that's our defining characteristic as his followers as well. That's why John writes in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. Next week, we're going to talk a little bit more about what it means to love like Jesus loves because there's a lot of concepts out there about what it looks like to love. But today, it's important to end with this, that the way we love defines who we are. See, the defining characteristic of a Christian is that we are growing to love 
like Jesus loves. So the call of every Christian, the dual call of every Christian, is to be loved by God and to love with God. Because as we experience God's love more and more, as we begin to realize that our, our value is not dependent on what we do, it's not dependent on what we know, but on who we are as children of God, as we experience God's endless, matchless, boundless love, we begin better to reflect that to others. And that's why it's so important that we spend some time every day being loved by God. Unless we spend time with Jesus, we can't become like Jesus. Ellen White in Desire of Ages writes, it would be well for us to spend a thoughtful hour each day in contemplation of the life of Christ. We should take it point by point and let the imagination grasp each scene. It's talking about meditating on this, digesting it, especially the closing ones. As we thus dwell upon his great sacrifice for us, our confidence in him will be more constant. Our love, our love will be quickened and we shall be more deeply imbued with his spirit. Friends, this is a time more than ever that the people of God need to be in the word and with the word. That we need to fix our eyes on Jesus. That we need to meditate on him daily. We are in a time of unprecedented change and challenge. And the only way we get through, the only way that we remain in the world but not become of the world, the only way that we remain connected to the world but not corrupted by the evil one, the only way we do that is that we spend time daily with Jesus and allow him to transform who we are to be more like him. You know, as one of your pastors, I can honestly say that I don't have the answers. I don't have the answers to all the challenges and questions that lie before us but I know the one who does. And that's why it's so critical that all of us, all of us, fix our eyes on Jesus, that we meditate on Jesus daily. And here's what I mean by meditation, meditate. They say that if you can worry, you can meditate. Because meditating is just tossing around in your mind over again a certain thought. Like, have you ever had a worry, a nagging worry that you just couldn't get out of your mind? Has that ever happened to you before? You just couldn't stop thinking about it. It's always there, present in the back of your mind. Or have you ever had something great happen to you and then you couldn't stop thinking about it? When I was in high school, a friend of mine came up to me and told me that a certain girl liked me. And I didn't believe him because she was way out of my league. Like, way... Amen, Doug says. <laughs> she was way out of my league. Way out of my league. Doug knows what it means to be loved by a woman way out of your league, right? <laughs> way out of my league she was. And so I, I said, there's no way that she likes me. There's no way that she likes me. But he insisted, he insisted. He said, dude, I, I don't get it either. <laughs> but she definitely likes you. 
And so for the rest of the night, I, I couldn't stop thinking about it. It was constantly on my mind. I thought about it as I was doing my homework, as I was eating my dinner. I had this goofy smile on my face. That night, I had one of the best sleeps of my, all my years up to that point. And the next morning when I woke up, although I could hardly believe it, I got up the courage and I went up to the girl and asked her if it was true. And it turns out it wasn't. <laughs> but I had one great night believing that it was. <laughs> and that's what it means to meditate. That's the power of meditation. As we think about a thought over and over again in our minds, it changes the way we think and the way that we live. And this is a time more than ever that we need to meditate on Jesus. We meditate on so many different things. We meditate on our worries and our concerns. We, we worry about the future, about the economy, about the state of our retirements. We meditate on those things. We meditate. We meditate on what we want. Black Friday is coming up. And some of us have already gotten our Amazon wish lists together. And we meditate on that. We meditate on the cars and the clothes and the, and the toys that we want. We meditate on that. We meditate on our phones. According to one survey, 66% of American adults experience anxiety when they can't interact with their phones. Like you forgot your phone when you were coming to church, and so you don't have it with you right now. People feel anxiety over that. Or if their battery dies halfway through the day and they can't get their messages. People feel anxiety about that. Some of you may be feeling anxious right now just thinking about it. <laughs> because we have trained our minds to meditate on our phones. Isn't it time that we allow God to rewire our minds to meditate on Jesus? And that's why today I want to do something that I almost never do. And that is to make an appeal to you. I'm doing this because that's how important I believe this is, to meditate on Jesus. We are at an inflection point. We are at a crossroads in the life of our church, in the life of our world. We're facing challenges and questions that are too big for us to encounter and solve on our own. And so I would like to invite you to join me for the next three weeks, for the length of this series, to meditate on Jesus daily. If you're willing to do that, if you're willing to spend some time, it can be five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, an hour, if you're willing to spend some time daily meditating on Jesus, digesting the Gospels, first four books of the New Testament, or memorizing passages from the Gospels, if you're willing to make that commitment with me, would you please stand? And I know this is a big challenge. It's going to take time. So if you can't stand, I completely understand. But if you're willing to make this commitment, stand with me as we pray. Our good and gracious God, it is our desire to meditate on you. As the old hymn says, 
Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. You are our vision. You are our focal point. You are the only way that we get through the challenges ahead. So help us to meditate on you daily and be transformed by you so that when we encounter the challenges of life, we can face them the way that you would, to navigate them the way that you would, to love the way you love. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Find more podcasts, videos, church events, and how you can support the Loma Linda University Church at lluc.org.